So if you have your Bibles, go to Genesis 2. If you have your phones, go to utown.org and register for the marriage conference. It's the only reason you should be surfing the net right now. <laughs> One of these days, I'm going to set up cameras on top of the ceiling so I can look down and see what you all really are looking at. You think I don't notice? Come on. No, I'm just kidding. All right. So this morning is going to be a little um, unique. Um, really, our message this morning, our, our focus this morning... Uh, is going to be um, what is sitting here in front of us, the, the baptismal. And so I look forward to celebrating baptisms with you. Um, I, I, many of you have been, how many of you have been here before for baptisms? Raise your hand. All right, good. Because I talk about you an awful lot. I have never been a part of a church that does such a, an incredible job um, celebrating baptisms like you do. So I look forward to that. In the meantime, in the meantime, I have the privilege of trying to answer some of the questions that you asked last week from the message on Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Um, I put a, tech, uh, a cell phone number up there. You texted. You asked your questions. Some were great questions. There were got a few jokes. I always appreciate that. Um, some were nearly impossible questions to answer in this setting. Some were questions that theologians over hundreds and hundreds of years have never answered, so I don't feel any pressure. Um, I have a list of seven, however, uh, with the time, I'm probably going to jump at least two or three of those, so I'm just kind of giving you that, that heads up. What I want to do is start by reading Genesis 2. We read through Genesis 1 last week. I think there's value in reading Genesis 2 to kind of set our affection and minds and hearts uh, on who God is and what he did, and then we'll talk about some of the details. So Genesis chapter 2, I'll start reading in verse 4 says this, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being." The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure, bdellium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the 
Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. We'll talk about that a little bit next week as we jump into Genesis chapter 3. So if you're a guest with us, let me just uh, tell you this is not the normal way that I approach a message. This is going to be way more teachy than preachy until we get to the end because I can't help it, so I will end up being preachy at the end. But this morning I'm responding to questions that those who listened to last week's message asked. Okay, so that's that's kind of the, the context of of today. So the very first question that I'm going to deal with is, Moses is the one who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, or at least most of Deuteronomy. So, so if Moses wrote those things, and Moses wrote Genesis 1 and 2, how did Moses know what happened during creation? The inference is he wasn't there. It's a good question, right? There's a couple of options as you uh, start researching many Jewish historians and Jewish theologians. What you find is there is uh, an idea out there that perhaps it was oral tradition that was passed down from Adam to Moses. Difficulty with that is that's a little bit over 2,000 years. You may lose a little bit of the historicity of the moment, so probably not oral tradition. Some people thought perhaps it was written tradition that was handed down. In fact, um, some people believe that when Moses was on the mountain and he had the two tablets of stone, it wasn't just the Ten Commandments that were written on the stone, but in fact, God actually recorded for Moses the events of Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, that was handed down, and that's, that's a possibility. Some theories exist that the written tradition lasted all the way to the time of Joseph, and so when Joseph died in Egypt and, and Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and they carried Joseph's bones, he didn't just carry Joseph's bones, he also carried the written tradition that Joseph had out of Egypt with him. Another option, this is going to be a lot like this, so I'm sorry. I will tell you which one I believe in, like this last one. There's this thing called direct revelation. This, this would be consistent with the rest of Scripture. The same way Isaiah and Jeremiah knew that there was a Savior that was coming and that this Savior would be born of a virgin. His name would be Emmanuel. The same way Micah, the prophet, wrote and said that this, this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, of all places, podunk little Bethlehem. That would be like somebody 2,000 years ago saying that your child is going to be born in Union Bridge. I believe in direct revelation. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.21, no man spoke of his own volition. He spoke instead words of God as he was carried along by the direction of the Holy Spirit. That is the act of inspiration. I believe that Moses may have had some oral tradition. He may have had some written history passed down to him, but ultimately it came from the fact that he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's, that feels like a cop-out. I promise it's not. I don't think. Did I lose anybody yet? All right, good. All right. If anybody gets up in a huff, it'll actually be after this next question. <laughs> I have to explain the question. Some authors wrote based on perceptions of reality that we now know aren't exactly accurate. How does that affect our view of Genesis 1 and 2? So before you're all like, heresy, let me explain the question. As you read through Scripture, you find uh, the, the authors of Scripture at times referring to natural events based on their perception. 
So, so let, me, let me give you um, a, a verse here. Uh, Psalm 19, verses 4 to 6. The psalmist says, In the heavens he's pitched a tent for the sun. It's like the bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete it runs a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. So the perception of the psalmist is the sun is moving. Now, we know we're actually the ones moving. But you can understand the writing of the psalmist, right? As he looks, I mean, it looks like, I mean, the sun starts over here and it ends over there. By the end of the day, my office is about 140 degrees because the sun looks like it's moving. And so as he's writing those things, so, so if that's the case, if the authors of Scripture oftentimes wrote based on perception, then, then can we look at Genesis 1 and 2 with the approach that maybe Moses is speaking observationally and not literally? That's, that's the crux of the, the question that was asked. I would say there's a major difference between those two things. Particularly, I'll use the sun as the primary example. There's a major difference between the two. First, with the sun, we have verifiable evidence now that the sun isn't moving, but we are. And so we can, with that evidence and that information, read Scripture and understand exactly the perspective of the author of Scripture. We can be like, yeah, I get it. I get it. As a kid, I used to think the moon was tied to our car. My dad told me that. I believed it for years. Why is the moon with us? It's tied to the back of our car. Makes sense, right? So you can understand the, the observations of the psalmist because we have now verifiable evidence that explains further what he was observing. We can say, okay, that makes sense. But we don't have that same verifiable evidence for the days of creation. We weren't there. No scientist can jump into a time lab and end up back at creation. No matter what Marvel Comics tries to tell us is possible, it's not possible. So as we approach Scripture, our approach must be one of literal normative interpretation. Let me explain what that means. I think oftentimes people are like, well, if it's literal, that psalmist is off, and so that just blows away all of... No, no, no. Literal normal is the way you read the sports section of the newspaper. You know, contextually, you are reading a sports section. So you know when the fella writes on his, in his, his, his article that, that that guy hit the, the, uh, hit the stitches out of the ball. Well, well, no, you know the stitches didn't come out of the ball, but you understand what he was saying. He hit it so hard, it seemed like the ball was going to... Or that guy could not miss a shot. Does that mean he hit every shot he took? No. But the, the understanding is, that's an observational understanding. I get That's literal, normal interpretation of Scripture. As I read this, I understand there are times... That, that phrases will be used and simile will be used and analogy will be used. So I understand that, but I approach it with a literal normative understanding. And, and we have no reason to do otherwise in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Having fun yet? You're all just hoping I cannonball, aren't you? That's a possibility after this one. All right, here we go. Number one question by a long shot. Not even close. And this actually surprised me a little bit. Let me check time. Yep, not even close. Good. All right, here we go. What was the light on day one? And when I say by a long shot, 70% of the questions that came in were that question. So if you ask that question, congratulations. What was the light on day one? It says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first day uh, in verse three, God said, let there be light. And there was light. We know until day four, which is verse 14, that's when God created the sun, moon, and stars. So in the meantime, what was, what was the light on day one? Let me give you some options that are out there. 
Uh, some believe that the light was a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. They think it was Jesus uh, um, being there. And the, what they point to is John 1, 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. See, Jesus was light. I think the difficulty there is that John 1, 9 is, is probably a metaphor of truth, not actual brightness and light. So I think that falls apart just a little bit there. Um, I found an author that said it was something that was repurposed into the sun. It was a pillar of fire or a cloud or something that when day four, God took that and made it into the sun. I, I, I don't find a lot of value in that one. That's, um, if you believe that, I'm sorry. I find value in you, and that's what matters. Um, <clears throat> some think it was the angels. Some think it was, it was the angels. And here, here's what they point to. <clears throat> Revelation 18. Uh, after this, I saw another angel with great authority coming down from heaven, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. So some believe it might have been the angels at that point. That's possible. Um, Got to figure out how God separated light from darkness in day one. So did he just like, angels, you go over there, but not over there? I'm not sure how that works, but that's, that's okay. That's not a good thing. Um, the, some, <laughs> this is my favorite one. Um, it's some kind of light sourced by God. Thank you. Very helpful. Um, some believe it's the Shekinah glory of God. This is that glory of God that appeared in the tabernacle and in the temple. Exodus 40, 34, the, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the temple, we're told in Ezekiel. Let me get there, Ezekiel. That the glory of the Lord of Israel comes from the east. His voice sounds like the roar of a huge torrent, and the earth shines with his glory. So the Shekinah glory of God is able to shine on the entire earth. So that is, that is a lot of the options. Me, my answer is we're simply not told. I prefer the understanding of the Shekinah glory. I lean towards that. I could probably be talked out of that. I, I, I'm really, I, I'm not positive. And here's, here's one of the things that, that comes back sometimes. It's like, well, without the sun, how could these things have happened? And let, let me answer it this way. If God in Joshua chapter 10 is able to hold time still for an entire day so that his people can win the battle against the Amorites, God can make sure that the plants don't die without the sun. I am so not on time. So let's see, 10.03, which means I should be on my last point. <laughs> not happening. All right. Um, actually, I will deal with that one a little bit later. Um, I'll deal with that one a little bit later. All right, let's jump to the big one. Number six, question number six. We're going to jump to question number six. Okay, time for the real question. Darwinism, old earth, gap, day age, young earth. Surprisingly, the number two question that came in, it wasn't as big as the what was the light in day one. Um, let me say this at the onset. We need to approach Scripture with humility, period. Please hear that. Um, I'd be careful about getting off on a hobby horse, but approach Scripture with humility. One of the ways you do that is when you take a perspective or a view on a scriptural event, when you take that view, become an expert in your own weakness. Don't become an expert in everybody else's weaknesses. Become an expert in your own weaknesses. We, too often what we do is we, we just continue to, to pad our arguments because we become experts. In, this is a strong point. This is a strong point. You, you, can't, you can't do that. The reality is, um, if God's word says it, it's done, no discussion. But don't fall for the trap of, of trying to bolster your position by claiming that Scripture is entirely clear on point A, when in fact it's not. Own your own weaknesses. 
But let me tell you this. If you approach the Bible with this perspective, you approach any issue with this perspective, the Bible is true, God is big, he's able to do more than we could ever ask or think, then then no matter what difficulties we run into face first, if we approach him with those lenses, we're going to be okay where we land. And so this morning, I want to talk about a few of those. And again, super oversimplified, uh, nuances all over the place. So I will say one view and you will think, okay, but all about that. Yeah, there's nuances to every single position. So please understand that, okay? So the first one that I want to get out of the way with and just deal with real quick is Darwinism. Darwinism. Charles Darwin in an incredibly oversimplified way. (laughs) Um, Darwin states that all species evolved from different species. Uh, His statement in his, his book is, I view all beings not as special creations, but as lineal descendants of some few beings. So all living things have been modified over time. So survival of the fittest, the desirable traits being passed along, and those changes, natural selection, end up ultimately leading to whole new species in that that process. So when when Darwin drew the, the tree of life, at the very top of the tree of life were a very few, very few, simple species. So that's, that's the rough understanding of Darwinism. Um, there's some basic problems with Darwinism that you're probably already aware of, so I don't want to just pile on. Let me just mention them kind of in transition. They really struggle uh, with the Cambrian explosion. Cambrian explosion is that uh, fossil strata is all mixed matched together, and suddenly you have the appearance of almost all groups within the animal kingdom at the same strata. Um, Charles Darwin actually recognized that as a problem. He said this, the Cambrian explosion is a serious problem which at present must remain inexplicable and may be truly urged as a valid argument against the views here entertained. He saw that as a problem. Um, so do I. Uh, Darwinism claims that impersonal made personal. We have, we, we, we have this, this monitor creates something with feelings, emotions, and intellect. Okay, that, that's a leap. That's difficult to do that. It can't happen. Uh, It's based on chance. Darwinism is based on chance. So did you know you have a 1 in 10 million chance to become president of the United States? That's the same chance that you are to be killed by a part falling off an airplane as it goes over your house. Just a little trivia for you. Okay. You have 1 in 100 trillion chance that a meteor will land on your house. You have 1 chance in 10 with 282 zeros after it that a place will exist where the parameters needed to support life would just happen without an outside divine influence. So so that's a weakness of Darwinism. Another one is nothing made everything. Nothing made everything. Now Darwinians, there we go, get it right, explain and describe how the life process evolved, but they can't figure out where matter came from to begin with, where that first single cell actually come from. If if you just think about that, the, the reality is spontaneous generation is impossible. You don't show up and suddenly you have a new couch. Just popped out of nowhere. Spontaneous generation uh, is impossible. So those are some of the weaknesses of Darwinism. So here's, um, I was saying Darwinianism. I was making up my own thing. Um, then you've got uh, another view, theistic evolution. Theistic evolution basically teaches that God was the source. He created the elements and then he stepped back. Um, He basically wound the clock and then let everything run on its own. Now, there were times that God would then intervene in evolution to help along with some of those jumps that were a little tough for creation to make from reptile to bird, things like that. 
um, major difficulty with that is we see that God was uh, involved through Scripture uh, as the sustainer. So to say that he stepped back uh, wouldn't necessarily be an accurate scriptural stand. So, and, and on top of that, theistic evolution inherits all of Darwinism's flaws and weaknesses. Now, there's a grouping of these beliefs. Man, time is just flying. That's okay. Um, and then there's, there's two different groups that I want to kind of lay out. There's old earth creation and young earth creation. Okay. Let me, let me say in general, old earth creationists and young earth creationists um, hold to a high view of Scripture that is, in fact, inerrant, and it is authoritative. That's most in both camps. Not all, but most in both camps. Now, old earth creationists will generally hold to the view that the earth is, is millions or billions of years old, but they, but they also strongly reject biological Darwinism. So it's, a, it's an interesting little mix, and I want to talk through that. Now, I disagree with old earth creation, but, but this week studying them in particular has challenged me in a few areas, and I'm hoping it would do the same for you. I'm hoping that in your discomfort, in your tension, that instead of listening to what somebody else says about a view, you will go to the primary sources and listen to what they actually say. Too many times we build straw men so we can destroy them and look like we're the heroes of our own argument. And in fact, the straw man that we built looks nothing like the original argument. And so we, we need to have these discussions with integrity, have these discussions with, with hu- humility. The first old earth creation type idea was made popular in the Schofield Reference Bible. It's called the gap theory. The theory is that in Genesis 1-1, God created, and that's describing his old creation, prehistoric animals, angelic beings, all of those different things were created. And in verse 2 of chapter 1, when the earth is now formless and empty, what you are seeing is the aftermath of Satan's fall, the aftermath of Satan's rebellion. So God has now judged because Satan fell, and what you are left with is a formless and void earth. So chapter 1, starting in verse 3, God then recreates the earth. So that's the, the view that's popularized by the Schofield <clears throat> Reference Bible. Obviously, Scripture never speaks of an original, original fall. Um, it would be difficult to look at verse 31 when God looks at the entirety uh, of his creation and calls it very good. Uh, that would mean he was overlooking what uh, the gap theorists believe happened in chapter 1, verse 1, verse 2. Um, yeah, let me, let me move. That, that's a rabbit trail I don't want to chase. Let me jump. The other old, another old earth creation view, day-age creation. So what, instead of reading chapter 1 as literal days, right? Day 1, created light and darkness. Uh, day 2, he expands and separated the sky from water. Instead of reading those as literal 24-hour days, they will look at that and say those are epics of, of time. Now, they're correct. The Hebrew word that is used in Genesis chapter 1, yom, can be used for 12 hours, it can be used for 24 hours, and it can be used for a long period of time. I find very interesting that when they look at the creation that God did, they, they don't think God couldn't have, have done the job in 24 hours. So take day six in particular. They don't believe that it would be difficult for God to create all of the animals and mankind in a day. They don't believe that it would be difficult for God. What they do believe is it would be difficult for Adam to pull off what he pulled off on day six. Because as you read through Genesis chapter two, Adam uh, was alone and it wasn't good. And so God brought to him every animal and he named every animal. He named every bird. There was still no companion that was found for him. And so then God um, put him asleep and took the rib and created a woman. And when Adam woke up, his response was, 
at last inference there being a long period of time. And so for me, I think that's the most compelling argument of day-age creation. However, I, I, I don't agree with it for this reason. That word yom in the Hebrew means day. Whenever it is used in the Old Testament with a number, it is always a literal day. So if you look at every other time, and outside of Genesis 1, you look at the rest of the Old Testament, every time that word is used and there's a number with it, the context only uh, could mean literal day. There, there's, it would be impossible for it to mean a long uh, period of time. And, and I'm sorry, I have things that I could throw up here real fast for you, but uh, the lights are even trying to tell me that it's time to be done. So uh, another old earth creation, it's not as popular, uh, historic creationism. And it's like, so when you hear that, historic creationism, you're like, I thought I believed historic creationism. Well, let's see if you do. Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created. And then there was some time. So historic creationism, creationism states that heaven and earth, in verse 1, is the, all, the whole enchilada. God created an all of it. And then in verse 2, it took a while. Verse 2 was there for a long time. And then, after that period of time, the six literal days happened. After that period of time. So, so that sees the earth as old and humanity as young. Now, it's interesting. As I wrestle with this one, I'd, I'd like to like, poke at that one a little bit. But, but, but there's really... They're, they're really following the text, and they, they're doing it with good conscience. So it's a difficult one to poke holes in. However, I poke holes in it because I'm a young earth creationist. I believe in the six literal days of creation and the seventh day God rested. For all of the reasons that I've already mentioned. Um, so that would make the universe about 12,000 years old, something like that. And the, the pushback is, what, what do you do with, with carbon dating? I have no problem with carbon dating. I mean, I'm married, so I don't date. All right, make sure you're with me. Um, that was awful. Oh, I should get fired for that. Um, so the, 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 the carbon dating. I believe God created Adam and Eve's mature. I believe he created not saplings, but full-grown trees. I believe that he created a mature earth. Well, isn't that a cop-out? Well, no, let me, let me help you here. Jump ahead to the ministry of Jesus. So he sits there teaching the 5,000 people. He sees that they're hungry. He doesn't have to plant wheat, wait for it to grow, then make bread to hand it out to people to feed them. He doesn't have to wait for the little minnows to grow up, become full-grown fish in order to, to fill them full and have leftovers. He's able to create in completion the finished product. So I believe without a question that God would and could, and I believe he did, create a mature uh, creation. So uh, as Bible readers as you seek truth, please remember that devout Christians throughout all ages, not just today, but through all ages, have disagreed about the duration and the nature of the creation and days in particular. Do this. Remember that if somebody believes that days is a period of time versus a literal 24-hour period of time, they're not sinning. But when you malign their character and yell at them and get angry with them and call them compromisers, you are. So we would do well to, to keep that in mind. All right, last one, closing one. This is the one where I'm actually going to preach, which means there is no chance that we're finishing on time. Sorry. 
Is keeping the Sabbath a spiritual discipline? How could it be used to bring people to Jesus? Am I really going to answer that question? Just a little. You ready? Is Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath a spiritual discipline? It is, uh, spiritual discipline is a practice found in Scripture that promotes spiritual growth. Is it a spiritual discipline? Yes, it is. Should we be practicing that spiritual discipline? We absolutely should be. Could it point people to Jesus? Well, let me say this. On the seventh day, God ceased from work. Why? Was he tired? I mean, were his arms sore? No. Because the work was done. So what God did in six days, he creates, he calls it good, and when he's completely done, he calls it very good, and then, then he rests. A lot of people will say that the, the crowning achievement of the week of creation is, is the creation of man and woman. I would disagree. I think the crowning achievement of God's creative event that week is when God looked around, saw everything was good and complete, and had time to rest. Why? I've used this illustration before, so forgive me. You ever watched the show Chopped? Chopped is this cooking show where they get a basket of ingredients, four or five ingredients, and the, there's four chefs, and they're competing against each other, and there's a judge of chefs, or a panel of judges up there of chefs, and they, they pull things out, and usually they have absolutely nothing to do with each other. So it's like, Fruit Loops, Kale, Frog Legs, good luck! And they have 30 minutes to create something, and you can see them, like, sweat's pouring down, and they're like, and they're going crazy and running around and all that stuff. But every once and again, you get one chef on there who pulls this crazy concoction out of the basket and goes, got it. And out of the 30 minutes, they work for 15 minutes and they're like, and they get their, their, their uh, napkin and they're like wiping off the plate so it looks nice. I mean, they're, they're sculpting butter statues of the judges. Why? Because they have the time to. Meanwhile, the other three are like, how do I make kale taste good? <laughs> um, which is a huge problem for all of us. But the they're freaking out. But this one judge stands out above all, or one chef stands out above all the others. He's such a chef. He's got plenty of time just to relax. God is so much more God. He takes that seventh day just to prove how God he is. Everything's done. Everything is Perfect. He's got time to spare, so he stops. He stops to enjoy his creation, and that's what it means to Sabbath rest, to be totally satisfied with what's been done. Friends, that is how we should rest in Jesus Christ. Can, can we point to Jesus for other people with Sabbath rest? Absolutely. You shouldn't be running around chasing ways to make God happy so that you might have a chance in heaven. You shouldn't be filling up your coffers with all these good works and pointing to them when somebody asks you, how do you know you're going to heaven? No, instead, Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor, who are weary, and I will give you rest. So take this yoke upon you. What Jesus is saying is, you come to me, and we'll make an exchange. I'll take your yoke, you take mine. I'll take your sin, you can take my perfection, my righteousness. And when you have my perfection, when you have my righteousness resting upon your shoulders, you can rest from the work because in Christ, it's finished. That's what it means to rest. That's what it means to rest. And what's beautiful and wonderful is that this morning, we get to celebrate with those who have made Jesus their rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you.
so much for your goodness and graciousness to us. Thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ and how we can stand before you complete, forgiven, and not have any worry. God, we can rest in you because, because Jesus finished work for us. I, I pray as we kind of work through in our heads the, the questions that were asked that, um, that, Father, first and foremost, we would be anchored in who you are and what you've done. And Lord, wake us up, remind us of how big you are. Amaze us, I pray. And I pray that now, as we take some time to celebrate with folks, that we would celebrate well. It's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen.